Well, if you're just tuning in with us, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, I want to invite you on our journey through the Bible. As a leadership team, we spent some time praying last fall and really felt like God was calling us to take our church through the Bible, starting in Genesis, the beginning of the year, about six weeks ago, all the way through Revelation by the end of this year. With all the craziness going on in the world, we thought we need some rock-solid, bedrock truth, and so we are going through uh, God's Word. And last week, if you weren't here, Pastor Brian did an awesome job helping us understand how he took Joseph, when Joseph, the guy with the cool colored coat, was thrown into a pit, he took him from chaos to courage. Even in the midst of that pit, while Joseph was down there, God was actively working to take him from that chaos of that pit to become a courageous leader and continue to fulfill the covenant that God had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with his dad, um, Jacob. And that, what I loved about that message specifically, was just being reminded of how God was actively working even when he didn't see it. And that's a great segue into today's message this week, from captive to calling, and how God uses the captive times, the times of isolation, the times when we're captive to prepare us for our calling, even when we don't see it. And we're going to study a little encounter between God and Moses, and how God used this time that Moses had um, to prepare him for his calling. So I don't know about you, but when I see a picture like this, in today's day and age, It just looks kind of weird. They're so close. You know, and those guys with the, you know, the big finger up there and the guy with his mouth open. I mean, we kind of say in our house, like when you haw on something, like if, you know, we have a bigger family, it's like, I'm going to take that and go, and then nobody can eat it. You know, it's like, I just hawed on your food. It's mine now. You know, Um, they're hawing on people everywhere in that picture. But in some ways they look like they're having a ball. And they look like they're having a blast. And when I see that, I think it's maybe less of that feels weird or looks weird and maybe more of a little bit of grieving of like maybe what we've lost and maybe how much I really want to get back to that time. I think we've all probably told somebody else before COVID happened, I just never thought we'd be in this for this long, right? But it's, it's been tough. I think a lot of us would say we would have liked to slow down our life a little bit, but maybe not for this long. And to be honest, this time of captivity that so many of us have felt has caused a lot more pain than the inconvenience of wearing a mask. People are really struggling. People have had to alter their lives significantly. Some have lost loved ones because of this. Others have struggled with depression and anxiety and all kinds of things because of this time in captivity, if you will. Katie Fitzgerald, the chief operating officer for Feeding America, says there are 200 different food banks that they operate have seen a huge increase in demand, more than 60% in the number of people showing, uh, showing up needing assistance. But the number of volunteers has also dropped by 60%. On top of that, donations from grocery stores and other suppliers have dried up because of the spike in consumer demand. And the leader of Mental Health America said that since the pandemic began, daily pre-screenings of those seeking mental health assistance has jumped 60 to 70%. This time that we've gone through has really turned us more inward thinking more about ourselves, thinking more about our own families, and not thinking about others, and not thinking about what they need, but thinking about what we need. 
And if you're anything like me, sometimes you're like, God, what is your plan in the midst of all this? Where are you working? I just want to see it. Give me a glimpse of what you're doing. And I think we all know that God wants us as his church to lead for him through these times, not just live through them. But how do we do that when we're in the desert ourselves? And if you can relate to this struggle, I'm with you. And so is Moses. And so today we're actually going to look to see how God took Moses from the time that he was in captivity and used that to prepare him for his calling. And to prepare, uh, to prepare you and catch you up onto where we are, you can see up here, this is the family tree. So you got Abraham we talked about. God made a promise to Abraham, I will bless Israel. And then you look, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, Jacob had the, the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 boys. Um, Joseph that Brian taught on was in the 10 other patriarchs over there. You keep going down through the, uh, through the line of Levi and you see that we get to Moses today. You look at Moses is in the middle there. He's got a brother, Aaron a sister Miriam and he's married Zipporah and then they had two boys um, Gershom and Elizer and so as you look at this uh, when we were talking last week if you remember Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers right I mean so he's got this crazy colored coat and he was thrown into the pit and he was hanging out in the pit and then really struggling and then God brought God brought him out and started to really pour into him and really use him and put him in a position of power he was working right with Pharaoh if you remember that he was over a bunch of different things his brothers came to him and said hey I need some food and so um, Joseph went and gave him some food and then Pharaoh said hey bring your families here and settle in our best land pick whatever you want settle in our best land and come and so they all started coming so Joseph and and uh, all his brothers and everybody all started coming and settling with their families and as they settled in the land they kept getting larger and larger and larger in numbers and they were multiplying to the point to where now 400 years later so now we're at Moses 400 years later they were getting quite large as immigrants if you will in an, an Egyptian land the Hebrews were there and they were growing quite large that the Pharaoh at the time didn't know anything about what Pharaoh said 400 years ago to Joseph and he's like these Hebrews are getting too far in number and I actually, we need to do something about this. And so he ordered, the Pharaoh at the time ordered for any Hebrew boy that was born to be killed. He wanted to start thin things out and they were starting to be slave masters and slave drivers uh, to the people there. And during this time, Moses was born. So during the time when they were killing baby boys, Moses was born. And Moses' uh, mom took him when he was born, put him in his own little ark, in his own little basket, and sent him down the river. And then at the end of the river, who's there to find him but Pharaoh's daughter? So here's the Egyptian rule. So we're in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh's the, the man over everything. He's the most wealthy and the most powerful man in the world. And here's his daughter that finds Moses, takes him up, brings him back into the palace, and then basically raises him as her own. And so he's got basically all the wealth. Uh, he's got all of the power. He is raised up in this kingdom to uh, lead armies of people and to be in charge of all kinds of stuff. And so he's living really well. He probably didn't realize how good he had it. But while he was doing that, at this point, so Moses was a baby and was raised up and raised up and raised up, and now he's 40 years old. And so here he's 40 years old, uh, living in the palace, living with all this luxury and all this stuff, while he looks out the window and all of the Hebrews uh, were starting to increase in number so much that the Egyptians were like, we need to start doing something about this. Let's kill such and such. Let's start driving them and start whipping them and all that stuff. So Moses saw that, and he's like, those are my people. 
and the Egyptians are whipping and, and unfairly treating my people. So Moses steps in, 40-year-old Moses steps in, kills an Egyptian, and buries him in the sand. He kills an Egyptian, buries he's like, I'm getting justice for my people. Well, when Pharaoh found out about that, again, Moses is a Hebrew, and so when Pharaoh found out about that, the, the Egyptian over this whole thing, he's like, I'm going to kill that guy. And so Moses, afraid for his life, runs to the desert at 40 years old. He ends up marrying Zipporah, and they end up having two boys. And so at this point, he's out in the desert, hanging out in the desert, and now he's 40 years old with those boys. He grows up and grows up and gets older and older and older. And the point of our story we're going to read today, here's Moses at 80 years old. He had spent 40 years in the palace. He now had spent 40 years in the desert in isolation in captivity. And God's just about to meet him and just about to use him. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, where our story picks up. What's great about Exodus is it was actually written by Moses. And what I like about it is Moses doesn't sugarcoat uh, who he is as a person in this whole thing either. He tells an honest story, and we'll see that as we go. And so I'm going to be reading out of the ESV, chapter 3. To start, if you don't have a Bible, there's a seat, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. If, uh, if you're online, look up version or Bible Gateway. That's a great spot to find, um, find this. And so I'll be reading this. You don't have to stand because we're going to take this in sections here a little bit. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Really quickly, shepherds were the lowliest of lows of low of low. When Moses actually participated in helping write Genesis, he wrote that they're an abomination to people. So here's Moses going from the world's biggest wealth to the lowest of lows. So he's with his flock on the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And remember, the people are being beaten. They're in Egypt, and they're beating God's people, the Israelites. So he said, um, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Mosquito Bites, and the Pillow Fights. <laughs> and so at this point, he's no longer a prince. He's no longer leading armies of men. He's now the leader of a flock of sheep, not only a flock of sheep, but not his flock, his father-in-law's flock of sheep. And so he probably thinks at this point, this is my lot in life. Basically, I've run away from my post in Egypt and run over here and fled to the desert because I was afraid. And I've been living in the desert for 40 years, hanging out with sheep, and this is probably it for me. 
He, had no, he no longer had anything he used to lean on for his significance and who he was as a person and was probably doubting his abilities and doubting himself, and we'll see that that's in fact what he was doing in just a moment. But look at verse 7 again as it reveals how God sees our captive seasons and our first truth this morning. I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings, and I've come now down to do something about it. So let me tell you, if you're in the midst of a struggle right now, God sees you. God sees you in your struggle. He knows that you're struggling right now. The writer of Psalms says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And the shortest verse in the Bible, but yet very profound, is one, there's a guy in our church, Steve Clausen, was in the first service. Anytime a kid goes up to him, he's got a silver dollar. He gives him a silver dollar if they memorize a scripture verse, and he wants to encourage that. And so which verse do you think most kids go up to him with? Jesus wept, yeah. So they go with Jesus wept, and he's like, oh, that's maybe 50 cents. Do another one, no. Um, but that verse is the, the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's also extremely profound. Because at that point, why Jesus was weeping is he was looking at Lazarus, who Lazarus had just died, their friend, and they were all grieving for Lazarus because they missed him so much. And while they were grieving, he was grieving with them and cried with them. And so the first truth this morning is during our captive season, is this, when we hurt, God hurts with us. When we hurt, God hurts with us and for us. And if we really believe that God knows us better than ourselves, if we really believe that, that he has the number of our hairs, a number of the hairs on our head numbered, which isn't a lot for me, but for some people it is. Um, if we really believe that he knows that and he knows us better than we know ourselves, he knows when we struggle. And as a pastor and a, just a brother in Christ, I get a chance to meet with a bunch of other men. And uh, sometimes when men open up to me and they're like, hey man, I'm really struggling looking at this on the internet. Or I'm really struggling picking up this drink. Or I'm really struggling cheating on my XYZ or my taxes or at work, I'm struggling with whatever. And I have a chance to say to them, I said, hey listen, no one probably is going to know how much of a struggle that is for you except for you and God. And God knows you better than you know yourself. So how much more blessing do we think we're giving God if we're saying no to the struggle and yes to God? He knows how hard it is for us in our struggles. And when we say no to that and say yes to him, we bless him so much more because of it. Pastor Rob Cook, one of our fellow pastors on staff, uh, wisely said this, these times in our captivity of sorts that we've had is really a time of grieving as a nation and as a world. And when people are grieving, all kinds of things come out. You know, people are on edge. They've had to significantly alter their lifestyles. So many are in that grieving state. Some have lost family members and friends, as I've said earlier, and it's really hard. And sometimes when we want to get past the hard times, we need to remember that God is with us when we're hurting. When we hurt, God hurts with us. So let's continue reading on what God says to Moses for why he's there and he, what, what he wants Moses to do about it. Verse 9, Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, 
And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Again, remember, Egyptians, they're beating these Israelites and they're whipping them and oppressing them. So he says, I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So although Moses didn't think he was the right person, although he was starting to get comfortable at just thinking about himself and living in the desert, he had the perfect resume for what God wanted him to do in God's eyes. See, Moses was a Hebrew. So if he was going on behalf of God and communicating that message to them, they would listen to him because he's one of them. But he also spent 40 years growing up in the palace and knew how to talk to Pharaoh. Nobody talked to Pharaoh in that day. Moses knew how to do that because he spent 40 years in that palace. And another interesting thing is not only did he spend 40 years in that palace, but another 40 years wandering around in the same desert that God was going to have him take his people and take them through. So while he's in his desert, not knowing God's working, God is working actively to train him on the topography of that desert because he's going to lead those people through that same land. And lastly, Moses had tried to seek justice for God's people on his own, and he failed. What a great time for God to step in and use him. So just when Moses was thinking he was getting comfortable in the routine of his isolation, not living on his own strength anymore, he's starting to realize that maybe God's got something for him. And desert seasons are used by God often in the Bible. You know, Joseph, uh, who we studied earlier, spent 14 years in a dark hole of prison before God brought him out. So after Joseph came out of that pit, he was put in prison and spent all that time in prison before uh, God brought him out. And after being rescued from slavery in Egypt, Joshua spent 40 years in that desert wandering around with Moses before God had him become the successor to Moses. Elijah spent 40 days and nights in the desert. Jesus' disciple John uh, was banished by Rome to the island of Patmos where he, God used him to write the book of Revelation. Jesus himself went into isolation and went into captivity in the desert for 40 days after being baptized by John the Baptist. And the apostle Paul probably spent more time in prison than anyone else in the text. And God used him in mighty ways to, to write majority of the New Testament. And so I'd like to suggest that when we hurt, God hurts with us. But secondly, is this, before he uses us publicly, he trains us privately. Before he uses us publicly, he trains us privately. So here's what's happening. So God is talking to Moses and Moses is standing there and God's like, all right, here's the deal. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know what's going on. I'm coming down here to do something about it. And now Moses, I want you to get in the game and go on my behalf and go do something about it. But that picture is more like this. There's this flame in front of him and it's burning but not consumed. And he told him to take off his shoes. So he's got his shoes off and he's, he's, probably, he's probably down in front of the bush and, and looking at that. And God's like, okay, I've heard this. I've seen this. And now Moses, I want to use you. Let's rise up. Let's do this. I got this. Let's do this through you. I'm going to empower you. And you'd think at that point, his adrenaline would be pumping. He'd be ready to go and be like, yeah, let's go out there and get it. Man, we'll do that. But he didn't at all. And I don't think we do either. When we're in our own, our own desert season, I don't think we do either. 
And I'll be totally honest with you guys. This week for me, I get what Moses was going through. As I was preparing for this message to come up here today, I had a really tough week. I was confronted with some of my shortcomings as a leader and just really struggled and was really wondering, is this what I should be doing and bringing this message before these people? And God was like, no, I want you. I've got this message. I want you to do it. And similar to Moses, I was like, I don't know. And we'll see Moses basically had five excuses that he gave to God for why he didn't want to follow what God wanted him to do. And what's interesting about each of these excuses is they were all looking at himself. And he was saying, I can't do this. They won't listen to me. I'm a nobody. So let's take a look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, so God again had said, Moses, all right, I'm sending you, let's do this. And so here's what Moses says. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So excuse one, basically I'm a nobody. And God said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses had excuse number two. Then Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Basically, what should I tell them? Who are you? God said to Moses, an incredibly powerful statement, I am who I am. Then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is saying, because I am said so. Not I was, or I will be, or someday I will be, but I am. I am everything you need. You are not, I'm enough. Go tell them I am sent you. Don't look at you, look at me. I am everything you need. And then chapter 4, verse 1, his third excuse, they aren't going to believe me, basically. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So excuse number three, they aren't going to believe me. And at this point, let me summarize uh, what is happening here. And so at this point, God says to him, here, I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to give you some signs. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to empower you to do some things on my behalf so that when you get there, everyone will know it's you and not, or everyone will know it's me and not you that's actually going on behalf uh, of me. And so while you go up to those uh, Israelites, while you go up to uh, Pharaoh, I'm going to teach you to do a few things. And so he had three different things he could do. Number one, his staff, again, he's a shepherd, so he's got a staff, right? So his staff could become a serpent. So he could throw the staff on the ground, it could become a snake. Secondly, leprosy could be inflicted. Leprosy was a skin disease, and so leprosy can inflict it. And then thirdly, um, he taught him and he equipped him and he empowered him, didn't teach him, but empowered him to turn water into blood. And you know what that was? Basically, Moses had the power to show Pharaoh that while Pharaoh was trying to kill um, uh, all the firstborn Hebrews, God was like, you're not going to kill my firstborn church. That's the church I love. That's my firstborn. You're not going to kill them. And he basically said, now I'm giving Moses the power to give some plague-like signs to get your attention. And we'll learn next week the plagues did come because Pharaoh didn't listen, so you'll have to come back next week. 
And so after he said all that and said, I'm going to give you these three signs, I want you to go and do that on my my behalf, Moses had the fourth excuse and said this, I can't speak good. I can't speak good. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Scholars have debated this. Moses grew up in the palace. He was educated with the best of the best. He had said in in Acts, actually, we read that he was very eloquent in speech. So it's really interesting. We think that possibly he was just grasping at straws because he just didn't want to do it. And I think you might agree with me as you look at verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) So at the end of this whole thing, it's like, yeah, if you don't believe any of those other excuses, I just don't want to do it. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. So basically, after God says, No, I want you to do this, and then he just says, Here I am. Send someone else. And God continues to be patient with him. But what God is trying to get across to him this whole time with all of these excuses, I'm a nobody, who's going to believe me? I can't do this. I can't speak very well. Just send somebody else. God is like, you're missing the point. It has nothing to do with you. When we're in our times of isolation, when we're in our time of captivity and God calls us to do something, it's not about us. It's about him who's with us. And so I'd like to suggest the third truth we're learning today is that it's not who you are, but who's with you. It's not who you are, but who's with you. God is saying, trust me, stop looking at yourself. It has nothing to do with you. Get out of your mindset. You're trapped by your own captivity. Get out of that. Look at me. I'm going to take you somewhere. Do you guys remember The Lion King? Who remembers seeing the movie The Lion King? Anybody? You guys remember that little cub in The Lion King, Simba? You know, he's that little, Simba's that little cub, and then he's got his girlfriend, whatever her name is, and they're running around together. Did somebody say your name? Nala. Nala. Oh, there it is. So here's Simba and Nala hanging out together and jumping around and playing, and they're out there and they're doing their thing, and then they get it, they get backed into this corner, and there's all these hyenas around them, and Simba's trying to show off to his girlfriend saying, we're going to go to a place we shouldn't go and all this stuff. So the two of them are running around together, and the hyenas back them into a corner, and the hyenas are quite a bit bigger than this little lion cub. So when the hyenas get there, and they're snarling at him and growling at him and about to kill him, uh, Simba goes, well, I'll, I'll show them, and he goes... Like this tiny little, like, wimpy little cat, little something, you know, like that, or whatever. And they were like, that's all you got? That's it? All right, well, then we're going to eat you. You know, and then he goes again, and he goes to roar, and it goes, and it's this huge roar because Mufasa's behind him. Mufasa, the dad, right, is behind him. And so the dad's there, and he's like, that's my boy. You're not touching my boy. It's not who you are, but who's with you. Mufasa's there, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh. And so I think all too often we look at our little roar, 
but it's not who we are, it's who's with us. We need to remember that when we hurt, God hurts with us. We need to remember that he wants to, before he uses us publicly, he wants to train us privately. And it's not who you are, but who's with you. And so after this encounter with the burning bush, going back and forth uh, with Moses and God, Moses returns to his father-in-law. I'm going to summarize some text here for us. Returns to his father-in-law and asks if he can go back to Egypt. He's finally wanting to do what God told him to do. So Moses got his wife and his two kids. He went back to Egypt. And let's look at verse 29 where they finally did what God told them to do. And here's what happened. 429, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. If Moses just would have gotten over himself and done what God told him to do, Look what happens. God moves in the hearts of his people as they hear that he is with them and they bowed their heads and worshiped. And maybe you're listening to this message right now and you feel trapped in your captivity. Maybe you feel trapped in your isolation. Maybe you're walking around in darkness right now and you just can't find the light. And maybe all of this makes sense to you right now. And I want you to know that God loves you and that he sees you in your struggle. God loves you so much. God loves me so much that he sent his son Jesus down to this earth to take on a death that wasn't his to take on for us. And he sees our struggle and he said he's going to be coming back. And when Jesus was on this earth, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I think for some of us, we know that truth, but we just forgot how incredible it is to walk in the light of Jesus. And for others of you, just like God appeared to Moses in the bush, but Moses had to turn and look aside and go towards that fire, I'm inviting you right now on behalf of Jesus to come to him, come to the fire. When you're walking around in darkness, it's not going to get any more light until you come to Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest for your souls. Does anybody's soul in here need some rest right now? So can I encourage you, wherever you are in your journey with Jesus, to take a step closer to his unending, perfect, passionate fire for you. And I have a little tabletop fire here that I'm going to light. And I want to tell you that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're coming with today or what you will do. Jesus' unending fire and his unending love is for you. For those of you that can't see it, it's lit. It'll get bigger. But for those of you in this room that want to know more about Jesus, we would absolutely be delighted to introduce you to the one that says, I am the light. Come and walk to me. We would love to invite you to come up here after the service, and we'd love to pray with you. And for those of you online 
please click that button that says, I commit my life to Jesus. Please uh, click that button that says that I am raising my hand and I am leaving myself and I'm leaving my life and I'm going to follow him and walk in the light. If you have questions, we have a team online that would love to pray for you right now. And for those of us that call ourselves Jesus followers, people where we live, where we work, and where we play are desperate for real truth. They don't need opinions. They don't need political nonsense. They don't need any of the other stuff that's going on in the world. They need real, raw, unfiltered truth of Jesus. And he's put us where we live, where we work, and where we play for that purpose. In the last 12 months of COVID, here at Grace Spring, God has used our online ministry to expand our reach. And we've had an average for the last year of over 500 people every week that have been watching with us. We've had 190 people over the last 12 months request prayer with our team. And we've had 45 people raise their hand and say they want to trust Jesus for the first time. You can clap. People are desperate for real truth, even if they don't know it. And God is working even when they don't see it. And while those are awesome numbers, can I be honest with you? A few years ago, I was at a family meeting and I was standing up here with a bunch of our other leadership team and somebody said, how many people have trusted Jesus in the, uh, uh, at Grace Spring? You know, and I couldn't remember the exact number and I got back with them and told them later. But here's the question, if I was asked that today, here's the question that I would ask back. The first question is, who is the church? So if we're the church, I think my question back is, how many people have we led to Jesus in the last year? See, I don't have the privilege as one of, for one of your pastors to actually stand on your end of your driveway and, and talk to your neighbors about the daffodils coming out of the ground right now and then be able to tell them who created those daffodils. You know, Julie over there is really excited the daffodils are coming up. I don't have the privilege of being at your workplace, standing by the water cooler and asking somebody how their weekend was and hearing them talk negatively about uh, somebody and then having the opportunity to invest in them, spend time with them and tell them about Jesus. I don't have the opportunity as well of your kids' sporting uh, events or restaurants you go to when you tip really well and then you have the opportunity to actually open up a conversation with somebody and tell them about Jesus. It's your job. God has put you there for a reason. And if I could be honest with you, I'm in it with you. But I think just like Moses had five excuses all about himself saying, I can't do it. I can't speak very well. Uh, no, no one's going to believe me and all that stuff. God said, hold on a minute. I am with you. I am everything you need. I am who I am. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it's time to take up our own cross and die to our own insecurities and ask God to work through us. Jesus, when he was on this earth, said this, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I'm here to say I think it's time to lose our life, lose the control and the grip we have on our life and turn it over to Jesus and trust I am will be enough for you.
Instead of saying, here I am, send someone else, maybe we can say, here I am, send me. And I'm going to lean on one more group of people right now that my heart absolutely breaks for. And this is the group of people that are Jesus followers that were close to the fire at one point. But just like an ember that rolls out of the fire and starts to burn out and burn out and burn out to where it's cooled off, there are people that I've talked to, many people, who are getting further and further away from the fire of God. You were part of the fire, inviting other people to the fire, spreading the love of Jesus out there and wanting to invite people into relationship with him. And now maybe you're logging in once a week from home and, and watching. You're no longer in a group. You're no longer in consistent relationships with other believers for the sake of being held accountable to look more like Jesus. You're no longer serving but honestly, maybe you're living for yourself a little bit. And I'm not saying that because we're angry with you. I'm saying that because we miss you and we're concerned for you. Let me read this text for you. Stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce and he would like nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep your guard up. You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same for Christians all over the world. So keep a firm grip on the faith. Can I encourage you to keep a firm grip on your faith? Stay close to the warmth of God's love and his fire. And I don't want you to turn this off right now. Or I don't want you to check out for me because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to communicate right now. If you have a, a, a legitimate reason to be in isolation and in captivity in some way right now, please stay there. Please know that we're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to continue to equip you with our online ministry. And we, uh, we're thrilled that we can connect with you digitally. But can we encourage you to continue to connect with people digitally through Zoom, distanced however you can to stay close to the flame of God. But honestly, for some of you, and this might be hard to hear, but you're going on vacations, you're going to restaurants, you're having people over to your house, you're going to sporting events, you're hanging out with groups of people, but for some reason, you can't find your way back into the local church. And that we're concerned for you because the devil is poised and would like nothing better than to catch you napping. And so again, if you have a reason not to be here, please know that we love you, we support you, and we're with you. But for some of you, you need to hear this today. And you need to know that it's really, really hard to grow in relationships virtually. And we, we would like you here. And we're not saying that because we measure success by attendance in the seats. We really don't care about that a whole lot. We measure um, success by how many people are engaged and close to the fire. And so please engage with the only one who can provide you hope during this tough time. I'm going to introduce you now to a couple who I look up to greatly, and you guys can start, come on up if you would like. Gary Levine and his bride, Karen. I've asked them to come up and share their journey with us a little bit, because with Gary's health and his condition, he could easily and they could easily just stay in their captivity, but their passion for God and desire to live out their calling 
has gotten them out of their captivity and closer to the fire of God. And when I first started at the church, Gary was one of the elders, and I just remember I've always looked up to him, and he doesn't take nonsense from anybody. <laughs> I like that. So he's on our elder board, and then I love Karen as well. She's uh, got a fire in her belly as well. And so I would love for you guys to introduce yourselves to us. Tell us a little bit about you, and tell us how, um, how God has used your time in captivity to prepare you for your calling. Can you hear me? Okay. We joined this church in uh, 1998, and it's been wonderful. Uh, Karen and I were married in uh, 1985 at Yorkville Church, and the, the gentleman who oversaw the ceremony was Reverend Harold Teuscher. And when you stand before a pastor or a reverend and you or a priest, and you hear those words, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, you think, you, you don't think about it. You, you think, well, that's not gonna happen to me. Well, it happened, and uh, I don't like it, but I wouldn't trade it for anything else because it certainly changed the trajectory of my life. It's made our marriage stronger. Uh, my wife is an absolute rock. She um, is the epitome of a wonderful wife and helpmate. When we went to Colorado in, uh, about 20 years ago, we were visiting our kids and uh, we went for a walk and that's when the first symptom of the multiple multiple sclerosis that I'm dealing with uh, reared its ugly head. I didn't think much about it, but we chased, uh, I thought it was an orthopedic problem, chased the diagnosis of that disease f for about six years, and I ended up going to Mayo Clinic where I was diagnosed. And the person that delivered the news said, a lot of you folks have heard, you've gotten the bad report, whether it be in a doctor's office or at your place of employment or in your marriage, in a relationship you have, you've, you've heard something that you don't want to hear and you have to make a decision at that point how you're gonna deal with it. And, um, and this person told me what I had and I asked her you know, what I could expect and uh, she said, well, you could be in a wheelchair in six months, probably five years. I thought, boy, that's tough because I was really, I had a lot of pride in my physical uh, ability to the point of being difficult to live with, difficult to deal with as an employer and probably as a husband. So um, this progression of this disease has been inc incremental, it's been gradual, and it's stripped away every bit of pride that I have and in, uh, in my ability to function. And that, that's tough to say, it's tough to admit, but there it is. And I'm honored and I'm flattered that 
Jeremy would uh, ask me to talk to you all this morning because there are people in this congregation, the people under the sound of my voice online who have infinitely more difficult problems than I have. But I can tell you that just as God promised to Moses, he said, I will be with you. And that's crucial. And I can tell you that, that is a, that's, that's the thing that's helped me stay the course. It's made it possible for me to continue to live, and it's made it possible for me not to give up. So we're going to celebrate communion here in a few minutes, and um, I, I would like to confess that I've kind of, right up until very recently, kind of mailed it in when it comes to communion, thinking about what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I would ask you all to really examine yourselves. I examined myself, and I realized that without Christ's sacrifice on the cross, what are we doing? You know, we're no different than the Chamber of Commerce. You know, we're just meeting in a comfortable place. We're hanging out. We're shaking each other's hands when we can. But Jesus came to earth, led a perfect life. He was sentenced unjustly to die, and he died on the cross. But the difference between what we celebrate and what every other world religion celebrates in terms of their view of God or a God in this pluralistic society that we live in is that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's the difference. So think about what you're doing today. I think about it and um, it's helped me on my life's journey. So I'm going to turn the mic over here to Karen and uh, she has some words for you. I would just only like to add that we think often about, Gary and I do, about how we've seen God's hand in our life from the time we were little to the time to right now. We have seen him drawing and drawing us closer to him. We've had many desert experiences. We've had burning bush experiences. Gary and I were only married a year and a half when my son was killed in a car accident, which was the most devastating thing I've ever known. But God prepared us because he drew me closer and he grabbed my hand and he told me I could still breathe and move and love. And to come to, we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ after that. He's our rock, he's our salvation, he's our savior, he's our forgiver, he's our counselor, he's our everything. And because of him, we laugh, and we have great um, times together, and we don't worry about tomorrow. Um, we're just very, very grateful. So it doesn't matter what experience we have in our life. Jesus is greater Amen. than all of it. Um, when we have him, we have everything that's good. We're going to go to the Lord's table. What a privilege we have 
to be able to um, take what is symbolic of Jesus' blood and his broken body that he gave for us. If you would bow your heads right now and close your eyes and think about your life, the sacrifices that were made for you and the joy that Jesus died to give you. Father God, what a privilege we have to be able to come before you today. Thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for the redemption you show us in our life every day, for the beauty that you show us, the sun that shines and your blessings are new every morning, the stars at night, for the birds that are singing, for the promise of spring, for the flowers that will bloom. Our hope is in you. All of our hope is in you, Lord Jesus. We are so grateful for what you do for us each day. Forgive us for not being grateful. Forgive us for not thanking you every day for who you are. On that night, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the cup of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This and Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after he had eaten and said, that this is the cup that is poured out for you. This is the new covenant of my blood. Take and drink. Play this next song. I'd like to encourage you to get up when you're ready and go towards the fire of God. There's some fire at each station, some candles at each station, and when you're drawing close, Think of just what Jesus has done for you and how eternal life with him has already started. You can get up when you're ready. You can sing when you're ready.